how to stop dogs from eating rabbit poop, amongst other things, some thoughts on structuring training programs, and a deep dive into the differences between negative reinforcement and punishment. Many folks get these terms confused, but it's not just about the terms. It's about making sure we understand the ways that our dogs can learn about their interactions with the world around them. Sarah Dixon and I get into all of this right now in episode 11. Let's go. Just like our relationships with other humans in our lives, our relationships with our dogs are dynamic and complex. I believe that in order for those relationships to flourish or to find resolution when those relationships become strained, we must attend to them thoughtfully and with care. Welcome to the Consider the Dog podcast, created from archived recordings of live sessions where our members get to ask their most burning questions to some of the greatest practitioners of canine behavior. I'm your host, Tyler Muto. I hope you enjoy this episode. And remember, if you want to join the conversation live, you can visit us at considerthedog.com. Okay, welcome everybody. We are here with Sarah Dixon, who is joining us again for some great live streaming question and answer. But yeah, I think we're going to jump right into things. And we've got a bunch of questions that came in on the Facebook page. So we want to get right to those. Something tells me we're going to have a full, a full stack of questions today. And um, of course, you guys listening, if you have questions already in your mind or questions that come up while we're talking, feel free to post them in the chat. And Jake, who is our amazing media man, um, is sort of behind the scenes and will be fielding those questions for us and making sure that Sarah and I see them. So, all right, Sarah, what's up? Welcome back. Hey, I'm super excited. It was really fun last time. So I was pretty eager to sign up again. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we were just chatting before we went live here and we're both, uh, I'm in Buffalo and you're on the West coast in, in British Columbia, right? Yeah. Canada. In the mountains. Um, sounds like we both have the same weather today. I'm looking out my window and it's just gray and rain and grossness, which is basically what it's been all April long. Perfect um, weather to talk about dogs. Perfect weather. Yeah. Perfect weather to sit inside on a zoom, um, instead of have to be out walking dogs with the rain hitting you sideways in the face. So I'm going to jump right into a question here from Ruth. And this one's from the Facebook group. So um, Ruth said, okay, question one. So I'm guessing this might be, yes, there's two questions from Ruth here. Okay. Question one. All right. Client with an American lab, one and a half years old. Uh, She said, it's a lovely, but energetic dog. And she started to work on place. She's using an e-collar as part of that. Um, one of the main goals with the dog is to not eat rabbit poop. Oh man, that is like rabbit poop is like a delicacy for my little dogs. Like they are obsessed. So, um, okay. She's done the the dog's done great at leave it, but the dog continually wants to eat everything on the ground, wood chips, grass, et cetera, unless he's 100% occupied or corrected. Is there any hope to train this? So the dog. Uh, can just sniff with his heart's content, um, but not be eating rabbit poop and wood chips and other things that can be harmful. Um, and, you know, she says she's thought about using a muzzle as sort of a last resort. Um, I guess that'd be more of like a prevention kind of thing. And you know, a lot of people don't think about this, but, but rabbit poop, um, I used to have a dog like, so, you know, I joke about my little dogs now, but we've actually got it pretty under control at this point. Um, I used to have a dog that was also very obsessed with rabbit poop and was prone to getting hookworms from it. So that's the one thing we always want to be concerned about. You know, some people are like, oh, dogs will be dogs, but you know, they can get parasites from these things. Of course, we can keep our dogs on those anti-parasitic things as well. But, you know, some people like to be a little bit more um, organic with their dogs and not put Mm -hmm. those kind of pesticide chemicals into their bodies. And so we really want to make sure that we're keeping our dogs healthy and not eating rabbit poop not eating wood chips, wood chips, not only can they get lodged in their throat, but also a lot of them are, have a lot of dye in them. Um, so again, that's not like just wood, it's wood that's been treated usually with a lot of chemicals. Um, so you know what, this is, this is honestly, this is like eating stuff off the ground can be a real pain in the butt. So I'm excited to hear, um, any thoughts that you have on this, Sarah, and any strategies that you've found to be successful. Yeah. So I do, I do have a few thoughts. 
I saw this question come up on Facebook, so I kind of had thought about it a little bit. Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me is whenever we have a dog, I feel like we kind of talked about this on the last live too, but whenever there's a dog that's compulsively eating things, the first thing I want to do is kind of get the dog um, on a proper diet. So that kind of like compulsive need to ingest items, there's a couple of reasons that can come up. And one of them is because the, there's something lacking uh, in the dog's diet, or you may also see it if they have GI upset. So um, definitely one to feel to the vet. Uh, the problem with that stuff is it's really hard to diagnose because it's not something that you can run a blood test on. So you have to kind of do it by trial and error. Um, so really, really good probiotics and digestive enzymes, as well as like a super high quality diet. If the clients have the resources, I think investing in and in working with like an actual like canine nutritionist would probably be a good idea um, because it's a lack of nutrients or, or, if it is diet related, it's a lack of nutrients um, or ability to, to digest properly that causes that behavior. But you can also see almost it's, uh, almost that compulsive ingesting of, of grass and, and non-food items when dogs either have uh, any kind of stomach or a GI tract um, upset. So I've seen that from, you know, anything from a dog that has an allergic reaction to dogs that have like irritable bowel syndrome. Um, actually, even a dog that I worked with that had epilepsy, um, she she compulsively ate everything, rocks, sticks, mud. And um, once she actually got on medication for her epilepsy, that behavior went away. Uh, but she also had stomach upset, right? Like she would vomit daily. So I think it was probably more tied in with that. So my first thought was making sure the dog's healthy and making sure as much as we can that the, the body is balanced and the nutrients are there, the probiotics are there, um, and there's no allergies or digestive upset. So that would probably take some work with a veterinarian that's really specialized in diet or you know, a really qualified canine nutritionist. If they don't have the resources, the best probiotics they can buy and digestive enzymes they can buy, start on that and then play around with food. So even um, sometimes going to raw diet can be a good one with this one because it's just, you know, like I, I don't feed raw to my dogs, but with dogs that struggle with digestive issues, sometimes eating the whole foods is better for them. Um, just like with people, right? Like eating whole food that's not been processed, even really the best quality kibbles on the market are still processed and they do uh it does lose some of the um, nutritional qualities in in the process of making it so maybe a raw diet uh, again that's why i like to recommend working with a nutritionist because getting it balanced and getting it right is super important um, another thing that can happen is and i see this a lot with retrievers and also like a lot of our kind of like labradoodles golden doodles and, and bernadoodles too um, any, any dog that's kind of like a retriever, that's they're going to have an oral fixation, right? So they're bred to want to take things in their mouth and hold it. So you have that genetic desire to put things in their mouth. And then what can happen, um, the owners tend to do is overreact. And you can have someone who makes a huge deal out of it where every time the dog puts something in the mouth, they're screeching, grabbing, reaching, fighting for it. And that can actually create even more of a compulsion. So you have a dog who's got a regular, you know, kind of fixation of wanting to have things in their mouth that's normal for a retriever. And then the owners can make it worse because they don't want the puppy to, you know, put all these things in their mouth. So as a prevention with young puppies, I usually recommend to people to train, you know, like a drop it with positive reinforcement and trading for items. And then if it's something that is just natural, like a stick, just let them chew it, right? Like you don't have to, they don't have to put, you don't have to take everything they get in their mouth away, right? Um, and that takes the conflict away. And it's not always just us grabbing things out of their mouths, because that can create a, compul a compulsiveness to grab things and eat things. Um, and then the other thought that I had was, again, it's just a retriever. So it could be just um, like almost an overdrive of that oral need. Um, but those are kind of the, the things that I was thinking that could cause the behavior. So that's the really tricky thing is until you narrow down what's causing it, it's hard to state the fix. Um, I don't think that a muzzle is a bad idea to start with, especially while you're doing training, just as a prevention, like you said, Tyler, it's not going to train the dog, but if he's eating things that are potentially damaging, um, that might be a good idea because then he can at least get out and walk around and run and get energy out and not build up a ton of frustration. 
right? Um, so I think muzzling, muzzle, muzzle conditioning and using a basket muzzle is not a bad idea um, while the dog is doing training. Um, training a conflict-free, conflict free, leave it and drop it would probably be really good to do. Um, and then the other thing that I was thinking is, especially because it's a lab and it's got that need to have something in its mouth is um, training a controlled retrieve. So I think actually putting, giving the dog an outlet for some of that behavior of wanting to put things in its mouth and hold things. So training a trained retrieve, which should be fairly easy with a retriever. Um, and then it, just making sure that the dog has enough enrichment. So doing food enrichment programs at home, um, you know, taking him, making sure he's getting physical exercise and mental exercise, kind of like looking at a holistic approach from it. Um, but training wise, I think not, there's probably not much more that I would do beyond, you know, teaching a drop it. So putting things out of your mouth without conflict. Um, and then, yeah, the retrieve and then try to figure out if there's something going on with the diet that could be causing that. Yeah. I think looking at those, um, those causal factors with an issue like this is just so important because for a lot of dogs, if that, if the cause is still there, then the underlying drive is still there. And the problem yeah. with stuff like eating rabbit poop and wood chips is it's often occurring or it's going to occur when we're there to supervise. So yeah. most of the time when people are struggling with this issue, it's people that have like fenced in yards or yeah. they frequently like to let their dogs, you know, go hiking with them off leash. Um, so it's not the kind of thing where like, it's, it's relatively easy to teach your dog not to eat rabbit poop when you're standing there with the dog on a six foot leash. Yeah. It's a whole different ball game to get that behavior to reliably go away even when you're inside taking a shower and the dog's been outside by themselves for yeah. 45 minutes. Right. So if that, yeah, if that and like in those situations, there, I would be higher, like, right? you know, as management, don't leave the dog outside in the yard unsupervised, but like a full disclosure, I take my dogs hiking all the time and like they get into stuff. They're dogs. It's what they do. So they get dewormed once a year. Right. Um, but yeah, they if I if I see them, they're really, really good. Like they will drop things like if they've got they'll find bits of animal parts. And if I ask them to drop it and come back to me, they do. Um, and that's about as good as I can ask for. Um, yeah. Now, you yeah. mentioned a few times, um, you know, really good quality probiotic. Is there a particular type of probiotic that, that you often find yourself recommending or is there a resource that people can go to? Because there's just I know yeah. I look for, you know, for, for dog probiotics and there's just so much out there. So that's one that I do recommend going to the vet or the vet nutritionist, um, because what you can get available through the veterinarian, the quality is just way better than what you can buy over the counter. Um, the over the counter probiotics are not regulated. So there's really no guarantee on like the quality of them. Um, so it's better off uh, to just spend the money and go through that. I don't know any off the top of my head, especially it's different what's available in Canada and the States and even different parts of the countries. Um, but yeah, generally recommend going through the veterinarian or nutrition for that. That's good to know. Yeah. Cause yeah. I would find myself otherwise just poking around on Amazon or Chewy or something like that. Okay, great. Awesome. So yeah, Ruth, I hope that's helpful. Um, those can be challenging, challenging ones to deal with. And certainly I would say also, you know, um, you mentioned this is a client of yours and like, if for instance, you know, this is a board and train situation where the dog's going to be with you for maybe two to four or five weeks, even, um, really difficult to like resolve long-term in that yeah. sh short kind of time span. So really the goal would be to get the process started, um, kind of set the client up for success, make sure that they have the knowledge and resources that they need to be able to handle their end of things, right? Like reach to their veterinarian and stuff like that. Um, because I think, you know, when we get into like saying, oh yeah, we can get your dog to stop eating rabbit poop in four weeks, like generally what that's going to look like. And of course there may be exceptions to this, but I think most times if, if a trainer is going to say they're going to do that, it's going to be like, let's try to catch the dog eating rabbit poop and then administer some kind of correction and hope that that correction is enough, um, that with a bit of consistency, it's going to go away. And that can be a really, really tricky thing, um, to do because it's really hard to be consistent with those corrections. Um, and so it can sometimes feel like a very fruitless endeavor. So yeah. I think, you know, yeah, taking the time with this kind of thing, making sure we, we provide the resources to set people up for success. That's really going to be essential. Trying to fully resolve the situation in just a couple of weeks is probably an unrealistic um, goal with most dogs, I would say. 
Um, and I don't know if the dog's in a board and train with you or not. I'm just sort of throwing that out there. Okay. So um, we have question two from Ruth, and I'm just going to go right into this since we're already answering Ruth's questions. Um, uh, so um, she does not do board and train. So I guess that answers that question yeah. <laughs> with the lab. Does not do board and train, um, but she's hoping to do more training where she takes the dogs out, assuming out of the house and takes them on sort of adventures yeah. um, for reactivity, better leash walking, recall, et cetera. Um, teaching me. The owner wants the dogs making progress with her. Um, okay, I guess this this was sort of a, a you know I don't know if you ever do this kind of thing or if your trainers do, do yeah. but okay yeah so like you know for a, a pro like this how many times a week would it be appropriate for her to kind of get the dog out in order for the dog to have some consistency where then she can hand things over to the owner yeah um, and obviously it depends on the dog but you know just any thoughts on. You know what's realistic because obviously if we're not teaching the owner right away we're just working with the dog if we only see the yeah. dog like once every other week that's not a lot of repetition for the dog to begin to retain that learning right yeah so i love the style of programs um for me and my i've done a lot of board and trains but for me and my current setup i find it's really it's tricky um, i don't have a really great setup for it for large dogs and um, i find it eats up a lot of my time and I, I find them very draining so i love doing i call those day training programs i haven't thought of a found a better name for them where you know either you're going to the dog and working them or they drop them off at your place and, and you work with them um so we do we do that quite a bit um and i actually do have I, I do have a webinar on this but it's not on consider the dog so I no, it's fine. You, you can go ahead and share it yeah it's i just actually did this i do webinars also for uh, another platform called raising canine um so i do have like a one and a half hour webinar that talks about these programs like really in depth if you if anybody's interested on that um, but I would recommend like on average you want to do probably three days a week is probably a good average um, we do have we do a puppy program and the puppies come as little as one day a week um, and they do make progress but it's more because we're doing like socialization type of stuff um, because they're babies um, and we work on, you know, crate training and, and listening, like general listening skills. So I've done two days a week and that can work, but three to five is generally going to be better just because the dog is getting more, um, more opportunities to go out and practice the behaviors that you're working on. Um, I generally recommend to people if you're doing less sessions with the dog to do a longer program. So if you were doing say two sessions a week, you might recommend um, like a three to four week program to get the same results as you could do in two weeks if you're doing five days a week. And then I like to do a transfer session with the owners once every two weeks. So you have to kind of factor that in as well. Interesting. Yeah. And you know, kind of to relate this to any non-professionals who are on here as well, like and this is just an easy way to think about this. I think also as a professional, you know, it's sort of the same answer as if somebody wants to train their own personal dog and say, well, how many days a week should I realistically be, right. you know, like what's the minimum I have to hit here to be successful? Like, obviously it's great if you can train every single day of the week, but let's be realistic. We're all very busy and have kids and jobs and all these other things mm -hmm. going on. Right. So, you know, Hey, if you get three days a week, like that's pretty good Four or five days a week, a heck of a lot better you know, once you start getting to two days a week or less, kind of the same deal, right? If I'm doing private lessons with a client and we're meeting once a week and every time we meet, they're like, yeah, like I only was able to practice on like Tuesday and Wednesday of last week. Yeah. You know, that's going to be, that's going to really slow us down. They're going to see a lot less progress than somebody who puts that little bit in every day. Um, and, you know, I think the, the flip side too, or not the flip side, but the other kind of part of this is how much do we want to get done before we start to hand things over to the customer? Yeah. And that can largely depend on your training style and, and what you are actually training, right? Because some things you can get to a good baseline kind of quicker and hand things over. Whereas other things, like for instance, I always feel like recall when I'm yeah. working on recalls, I always like to get more in before I start having yeah. the owner practice because it takes a little bit longer for the dog to master. Versus yeah, and like they can poison the cue really quickly too, right? So, exactly. Yeah. yeah, the recall is really easy to mess up and it takes a long time before it gets like kind of functional. Um, and, you know, again, different training styles are going to dictate different things here. But, you know, again, like if, if you're a dog owner and you're taking your dog to a dog trainer and 
you know, maybe the dog trainer offers a program like this and you're thinking like, okay, like you, you, you worked with my dog today. I'm doing the dog home. Like, shouldn't the dog be able to do something for me or shouldn't the dog be different than it was before? And the answer generally is no, like it's going to take time. It's going to take, you know, a little bit of repetition and a few days of practice with that trainer to first off develop the relationship, but also to get those skills to a point, like I said, where they're functional. Yeah. But even then it needs to be sort of handed over. So the dog has no reason to believe up front that there, that it should behave any differently than before with its owner. Right. The dog says, I know when, when Sarah to me sit that she's going to give me a cookie, but for the past two years, you've told me sit like 400 times in a row and it's meant nothing. Or you tell me sit and I, sometimes I do it. Sometimes I don't, you generally give me a cookie anyway, as long as I look cute and you know, so the dog needs to see a change of behavior from you before it has different expectations for how it should behave with you. Um, and yeah, I mean, different, different trainers are going to dictate different things. Like, you know, it could be, they want to just work with the dog three times, maybe if it's three days in a row and then they feel like they've got something, maybe it's like just a little bit of leash walking or just a little bit of place commanded. Other trainers may say, you know, I really want to get this thing a little bit more polished up. Let's meet, you know, at the end of next week, right? But you really have to trust trainers' guidance. And also through that process, I think that's the hardest thing. We do some day training as well. And I used to do it exclusively. I used to also be in a situation where I couldn't do board and train many, many years ago. Um, And that was always the hardest thing to convey is like, yes, I'm going to work with your dog. We had them drop off Monday through Friday. So it was five days a week. And then we did lessons on Fridays. And, um, you know, being able to just make sure that the owner understood, like, don't go home and all of a sudden try to give your dogs commands. Like we would actually tell them, like, listen, like Mm -hmm. try not to give your dog commands when you go home today. Like your dog's tired anyway, like just sort of coexist. We don't want you reminding your dog that you don't know what you're doing because right now your dog's practicing doing it the right way. So um, until we give you instruction, try to avoid giving these cues at all costs. Um, But yeah, those are, those are interesting programs. Um, And of course, you know, I, I coach, other professionals quite a bit these days. And it's becoming a very popular option for people. And something that I recommend for a lot of, um, you know, professionals that I've been coaching who are, you know, working out of their home and don't want to do board and trains in their home, but need to have that ability to provide some more guidance to the dog before they have the owners um, kind yeah. of take over. Right. Cause they'd be really, really valuable in a lot of cases. Yeah. And it's um, such a great program for dog owners too, if they have the resources for it, where the dog kind of learns the dance and then they get to learn to just handle. I think it works really, really well. Um, definitely speeds up responses in a lot of ways. I'm a, yeah. I'm a big fan. Um, it's just, you know, figuring out how to structure it. That's going to work for you. But yeah, like I said, I've done even as little as two days a week and seen progress with the dogs. Yeah, that's great. Hey listeners, just a quick reminder. These podcasts are created from archived recordings of live sessions where members of our community can ask questions and interact with our instructors in real time. If you'd like to be part of the discussion, visit considerthedog.com and use code CTDPODCAST to get 50% off your first three months. That's three months for $10 a month, and you have access to not only these live sessions, but also our library of hundreds of exclusive videos and courses on dog behavior. Again, visit considerthedog.com and use code CTDPODCAST. Let's get back to the show. Okay. So here's a, here's a good question that we can, we can probably get into the weeds with. <laughs> um, so, um, all right, this is one's coming from Rick and Rick says, can you help me with my understanding of negative reinforcement and positive punishment? Um, he had been taught that the difference was that with negative reinforcement, the dog has the opportunity to avoid the aversive with positive punishment. He does not, um, uh, we can obviously clear that up. Um, what happens if you have a conditioned punishment marker, for instance, you ask the dog to sit and the dog does not sit and you apply a conditioned punishment marker such as no, and then the dog sits without you having to apply the aversive. How is this different than telling the dog to sit and the dog sits to avoid prong collar pops of R minus? So getting into a lot of the nitty gritty of, um, of, uh, operant conditioning here. And I know that, that, that you don't do a lot with, you know, negative reinforcement and punishment yourself. You do, you know, a lot more positive reinforcement type thing. (laughs) I mean, I know you're, you're, you're exactly. Um, Um, but I think we can help clear some of this confusion up for sure, because I know that like me, 
you like getting into some of the technicals of training as well. I do, but it's interesting because like the, the longer and longer I do training, the less I worry about it, but I do think it's nice to understand. Um, and for me, the basics of understanding, like when we're talking about operant conditioning is the first thing is the positive and the negative is just looking at is something added into the picture or is something removed, right? So when we talk about positive punishment, that's saying that something is added that's reducing the behavior. Right. So punishment just means the behavior is reduced in the future. When we talk about negative reinforcement, it means something's taken away that's increasing the behavior in the future. So there is quite a difference. So when we talk about positive punishment, I mean, there's a wide range of that. It ha- I mean, it usually involves something that's aversive to to the learner. Um, and that can be, you know, that can be something as mild as, you know, social disapproval. And it can be something as as harsh as, you know, things that we would probably consider inappropriate and abusive. So the, the guidelines are really just that something is added that decreases the behavior in the future. So if we look at, um, you know, let's say I cue my dog to sit and she doesn't sit and I frown at her and put my hands on my hips and then she sits. And the next time I ask her to sit, she's going to be more apt to sit. That's positive punishment. Right. It's a it's social disapproval. Me basically saying, hey, there, kid, like, you know, better than that. She's like, oh, yeah, sorry. She sits. And then in the future, because she doesn't want me to to disapprove of her, she's going to sit. Um, I could also, you know, give her a pop on the leash. Um, I could yell at her. I could spray her with a water bottle. All of those things are positive punishment just because something's added. Something's changing in the environment after the behavior that's going to reduce it in the future. Versus negative reinforcement involves um, first you are the negative is introduced. So again, it's going to be something that is negative to the animal that they want to avoid, because when we take it away, it's rewarding the behavior that we want. So it does have to be something that's annoying or uncomfortable or painful or unpleasant. Um, But it can be very mild, right? It can be very, very mildly annoying. Um, And those are kind of the ranges that a lot of really good trainers will work with negative reinforcement. I mean, I do a lot of negative reinforcement using spatial pressure, social pressure, leash pressure. Um, But yeah, so when we're talking about negative reinforcement, first, the, the negative is introduced or the unpleasantness, the aversive. Um, and then when the animal does the behavior, it goes away. So that's kind of the difference there is if positive punishment is like kind of like do it or some, do it. And if you don't, then something bad happens. And then you're going to be less likely to do that thing in the future versus negative reinforcement is like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this annoying or unpleasant thing. And then when you sit, I'm going to remove it. So next time I ask you to sit, you're going to sit faster so the annoying thing stops sooner. Um, so there's lots of op- lots of variations of negative reinforcement that are very, very mild. Like even if I'm cold and I go and put on a sweater, that's negative reinforcement because I'm removing the cold. So the next time I'm cold, I'm going to put a sweater on faster. Um, and then conditioned punisher is a little bit different. It's not negative reinforcement. It's the same idea as how we can use a clicker to kind of reinforce behavior. That tells the dog that... Um, the reward is coming, but the clicker itself can actually be reinforcing. When we're doing a conditioned punisher, so that's no, or like what we use a lot with the daycare dogs is, do you want a timeout? <laughs> so they learn that uh, if I tell you you're going to get a timeout, you're going in the crate. Um, they can actually change their behavior to avoid it, but the conditioned punisher still kind of functions as a punisher um, because it has that association to the negative thing and we're not applying it and then taking it away when the behavior happens so hopefully that's clear it's basically like let me see if I can do this really simple positive punishment is behavior you don't want you don't like happens and the bad thing starts negative reinforcement the behavior you ask for the behavior that you want the bad thing starts and then when the behavior happens it goes away so it's kind of like an on and off that's like our pressure on pressure off negative reinforcement whereas positive punishment is more like i didn't like that and something is going to happen yeah i'm going to chime in a little bit here too just because yeah you're really good at explaining this kind of stuff too it's been a while i haven't talked about operating conditioning in a very long time (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know i've done so much research particularly into negative reinforcement um, you know, as I was developing my e-collar approach, especially to teach other professionals. Um, and of course, also just within my work with the ICP, because I was dealing with a lot of legislation that yeah. around different training techniques. 
And I had to really dig through the weeds of research and kind of understand these things very, very clearly. And I think Rick actually asks some really good questions here. These are things that confuse a whole lot of people. Um, and so I'm just going to briefly kind of give my my two cents on this. And I apologize if any bit of it's repetitive, but um, I'm just going to kind of go through the questions here sort of because there's a few kind of logged in here. So first of all, Rick just said um, he was taught that the difference was that with negative reinforcement, the dog has the opportunity to avoid the aversive with positive punishment. He does not. So that's not that's not totally true. Um, so with negative reinforcement, um, yeah, generally. Like Sarah's saying, we're talking about there's something unpleasant the dog's experiencing. When the dog does the thing that we want, the unpleasant pleasant experience goes away, right? So they easy turn it be. off. Yeah, they turn it off, right? So um, like if we're talking about e-collar, for instance, the dog feels the e-collar stimulation. If they turn and come to us, the e-collar stimulation goes away. Now, part of negative reinforcement um, is also that, that, that animals do often learn how to avoid that whole thing happening, yeah. right? So they go, hey, wait a minute. But before that feeling starts, you always make this sound out of your mouth and it sounds like come. And that always happens about one second before this feeling starts. So when I hear that sound, I start coming quickly. I can just avoid the whole thing altogether, yeah. right? So they're, 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 they've turned off the stimulation or they can turn off the stimulation by coming to us, but they can also sort of turn yeah. off even the opportunity to feel the stimulation by just doing it um, preemptively, right? Yeah. So there is that avoidance portion to it. A lot of times you'll hear negative reinforcement training also referred to as escape avoidance training. Yeah. Um, and different trainers will teach those things in different orders. I generally prefer to do it like Sarah was saying and teach the escape portion first. So, hey, here's this feeling, here's how you make it go away. And then we eventually teach the dog how to predict the feeling and avoid it. Now, positive punishment, absolutely the dog needs to be able to avoid it. Otherwise, it would be happening all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the main thing you want to think about is what are we shaping here? What are we trying to influence? What choice that the dog made are we trying to influence? Because operant conditioning is all about choices. That's one of the things that distinguishes it in most cases. I say most, but not all, but most cases from classical conditioning, right? Think Pavlov, ring the bell, feed the dogs. Um, classical conditioning right? In Pavlov's case, ring the bell, the dogs would start to salivate. That wasn't a choice. Not one of those dogs decided to start salivating, right? It just occurred. Just a reflex. And yeah. It was a reflex, right? In fact, his work was actually titled conditioned reflexes. Um, but not only that, but the food happening after the bell was not dependent on any decision that the dog made. So the bell rang, the food's going to appear regardless of what the dog does in between right? It doesn't matter. It's not bell ring. And now you're only going to get food if you sit or you won't get food if you start barking. It's just bell rings equals food. doesn't matter what you do. When we introduce the operant part, that's what we're saying. We're saying the dog has to operate in some way in the environment in yeah. order to either produce, you know, something good or avoid something bad, essentially, right? To have this effect on the environment, it's choices. So what choice are we trying to impact here? Are we trying to make something that we like happen more, or are we trying to make something that we dislike happen less? That's sort of the key thing. So when we're building a recall, obviously we want the dog to come to us. We're trying to build that more. So that's, that's in the reinforcement category. However, you get to a point a lot of times with your training where we say, okay, now you, you know what to do. You know what the expectation is. You know that if you don't do it right away, that this unpleasant thing happens. And so now I can assume that if I say come and you don't come, that that's a conscious decision, right? That now you're making this choice of disobedience. And only when we think that the dog is at a point in their understanding where disobeying is a willful choice, right? Like willful obstinance, only at that point can we actually say that we're using, you know, punishment, right? So at that point you, you say come, the dog doesn't, and you say no, and then you follow through with a correction, what you're correcting is the decision to not come. But when the dog's first learning the recall, right, that's not a willful decision. Like they don't, they don't, they haven't even learned the, the pattern yet. You know what I mean? So um, some of it kind of has to do with that. And as far as like, you know, can the dog avoid? I, I think what you mean when you say that with positive punishment, the dog doesn't have opportunity to avoid. I think what you're referring to there, Rick, is that in many schools of thought, 
and this includes myself, if, if I condition something with the function of that sound being a condition punisher. So if I want to, the word no means a correction on me. And especially if I'm trying to use that word to completely eliminate a behavior I don't want, then generally, yes. Just like with a clicker, like if I click, I pretty much always want to follow it with a reward. I don't want to get in the habit of just clicking and, and that itself being the reward because over time, the click will start to, to lose value. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with the word no. Like ultimately, yeah, if I say no, even if the dog starts coming like immediately after, I'm probably still want to follow through with that, with that correction. Um, you can have other signals that mean like, Hey, you made a mistake and I'm, I'm not necessarily good correction if you do the right thing. Um, but in some schools of thought, the word no should then always be followed. And I think that's what you mean when you say the correction can't be avoided is similar to like, if you click, you always reward mm-hmm. that is, you're going to counter different opinions on that fact, Rick. Um, so, um, some people will say, no, 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 no. If you say no, and the dog starts doing it, don't correct. Right. No is still a conditioned punisher. They're just using that conditioned punisher a little bit more loosely at that point, um, instead of as a very, very strict predictor of consequence, which is really what a conditioned punisher is. So I think I think that's where the confusion is occurring for you, Rick, is, is that concept of, you know, if you're going to pair no with a punisher, then no should always follow the punisher. Um, but, but of course, the dog can avoid the punishment by just not doing the thing that caused you to say no. To begin with, like if it's counter surfing, right? Let's say the dog jumps on the counter. I say no. Maybe the dog jumps off immediately when I say no. A lot of people will still follow through with the punisher. Some people will say no. If once you say no, the dog jumps off. You don't have to follow through with the punisher. Um, you know, th- th- you're going to get differences of opinion there from many dog trainers. Um, but I think it's if you can just think of it as why am I doing what I'm doing right now? Am I trying to make this behavior happen more? Or is there a choice the dog is making that I'm trying to make happen less? And when we're starting negative reinforcement training, generally the onset of, of pressure isn't because of anything the dog did, right? Like they, they have to experience pressure mm-hmm. so that we can teach them how to turn it off and so that we can teach them how to avoid it. It's just sort of a inevitable fact of life. And that's why we often use very, very mild uses of pressure when we're doing this to make it at least as fair to the dog as we can possibly be. Um, if you have any follow-up questions to that, Rick, please let us know. It is a confusing topic. Um, and that's why I don't think about it so much anymore. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There are, you know, there, there are people out there. I don't think it's good training, but there are people out there who will teach behaviors using positive punishment. Um, like I, I liked what you said where, you know, it's only fair to use punishment when the behavior is really fluent and the dog is ignoring it. And I think that a lot of people don't understand how long it takes to get to that process too, because you have to go through, you know, learning the behavior, generalizing proofing, right. Mm-hmm. Before you can actually really say, okay, yeah, I know. I feel like this dog actually knows the behavior. It's what like 300 to 500 repetitions or something like that is what I've heard from yeah, like dog yeah. trainers. So it's a lot. Um, So introducing punishment too early can be unfair, but sometimes it's a safety thing too, right? Um, But there are people who who will train with positive punishment too, um, which isn't really, I think, very fair, but it does exist. So it really depends on who you talk to. It's also worth mentioning that when we're working on stuff like obedience, um, even if you're using like an e-collar or a prong collar, you don't necessarily have to be using it like consciously as positive punishment. You can get that job done and stay totally within the realm of negative reinforcement and get phenomenal results. Um, Some of it's stylistic difference. And then the other thing to kind of understand there as you're doing that is these things are not all, like there's not always clear defined lines between them in in practice. And there's gonna be a lot of time where functionally as a trainer, what we're doing and, and what we're trying to set up is a negative reinforcement based experience, but inevitably, you know, there's going to be elements of it that are technically positive punishment, right? Even with food-based training, right? There's an argument to be made, especially with people that do it on a, on a very high performance level that really want their dog to be, for instance, very hungry before they train. Mm-hmm. Well, hunger is not a particularly pleasant feeling. I mean, I'm not talking about starving the dog or anything like that, but just, you know, they, they wait for the, you know, like they're not going to train right after breakfast, right? You know what I mean? They'll train before breakfast when the dog's hungry. And Hunger is not pleasant. And then when we reward the dog with food, we're alleviating that hunger. There's mm-hmm. an argument to be made that in that context, yes, our, our, we're, trying, we're functionally trying to use positive reinforcement, but there is technically a negative reinforcement component bleeding 
you know, albeit not a very powerful one or strong one, but it is there. It is present. Creating and a, find creating that. a motivation, right? Exactly. Um, but part of my issue with trying to think of everything in terms of, of quadrants is you have to break things down into a tiny little antecedent behavior consequence, which is really hard and not practical in a lot of cases, like to really figure out what quadrant you're in. Um, you do have to break it down into a, into a single antecedent behavior consequence, right? So one tiny change in the environment. And that's what's really hard for people to do a lot of the time. And that's where you get the, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm adding something, but then I'm taking it away. And what's actually happening? But it's, diff it's actually different functional analysis. So it's not super practical to think in, in terms of operant conditioning solely, I think. And also, I think there was a lot, the, bit, the, the big move towards like thinking about everything in operant conditioning was because, you know, plus positive punishment is bad and negative reinforcement is bad. And now I feel like the dog training community in a whole, whether you're balanced or positive or wherever you want to put yourself, is kind of moving a little bit more towards the middle where it's like, okay, you know, negative reinforcement actually doesn't have to be a negative experience for the dog and can be a really powerful addition to a primarily positive reinforcement-based program. And also, hey, there's all this other stuff like social and ethology that we need to also understand. It's not just yeah, about- Cognitivism, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's just like things are really changing to even people accepting, you know, I guess, yeah, sometimes maybe using positive punishment to, to just totally stop a behavior is not a totally bad thing either. So it was super taboo for a while. Um, it's still pretty taboo in some circles but I don't really roll with those people but I, I feel like the community as a whole is coming a little bit more like mixing together and you just I, I, what I like to see is just like hey this is like good training is just good thoughtful training you do understand yeah. like I think people need to understand that because you need to be able to go back and look at what you're doing and, and here's what went wrong so understanding how to do like a functional analysis is really important but I, I don't I think we overthink it too much. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And I think for anybody who's just a dog owner, um, like it's not that important for not at you all. to understand. No. And if you're a professional, um, like I would really, really limit like how much you use this kind of terminology in your lessons because it, it can often be more confusing and cause more harm than good. Yeah. And so for me, I think it's really good just to understand even if you mix up, wait, wait, I, I said negative reinforcement, what I meant was positive punishment. Like, yeah, who cares? Those are just words. I think the important thing is just how does behavior get influenced by good things and bad things, right? Like, like, like how does behavior get influenced by, by um, consequences, both good and bad? Yeah. Right. And we can be applying good things, taking good things away, applying bad things, taking bad things away. And that's kind of the big concept here. And yeah. I think from a from a functional standpoint, I kind of agree with you when we're setting a training plan, like it can kind of get in the way where I do find as a professional really having an internalized understanding of these things mm -hmm. is more of a diagnostic tool. And this is something yeah. I talk about a lot with my students, my professional students is it's, it comes in really handy when you're out there working a dog and things aren't going as planned and you have to step back and say, okay, yeah. what, what might be happening here? Right? Like I yeah. think I'm negatively reinforcing the dog for doing X, but the dog's doing S X less. Yeah. So what, what could be, what other perspective could there be? What other yes. thing could be happening here? Um, and I think again, as that, um, in that sort of real world application, the lines get really blurry. It's really hard to, in fact, I would, I would venture to say it's almost impossible to function in a space where you are only using one quadrant totally 100% you have to find slice it yeah. so small it, it's just oh. it's, it's very dynamic but from a diagnostic standpoint to figure out where things are going wrong yes super super functional and the I other, think that's an important yeah. thing to understand the other places if you're coming in and you want to start working with a dog with a behavior problem being able to figure out what is creating or maintaining the behavior in the environment using a functional analysis again diagnostic is super valuable yep yeah, absolutely. And just some comments here from some of the people on the chat. So Jay saying, you know, negative reinforcement can also solicit acute behavior to happen quicker. Absolutely. And, yes. and that's, that really is, especially once you get into that avoidance portion and the dog yeah. learns like, Hey man, if I, if I hear that sound, 
I can, I can eat the timer, right? Like I can, I can game the system and avoid this thing altogether. In fact, um, uh, way back in the early eighties, there was a guy named Daniel Tortora that did some really interesting studies with e-collars as negative reinforcement. In fact, it's arguable that he is the reason that we have e-collars today that are adjustable from the handheld transmitter. Cause when he was doing his research, they weren't. And he, he worked with Tritronics to sort of custom build some systems for his, for his research that he was doing. Um, but yeah, absolutely it can, right. That's because it's reinforcement. That's sort of the whole idea yeah. there. Um, and, and um, he also, uh, Jay also said that it can be very, it, it can be almost impossible to actually think of the quadrants as boxes when you're missing the element of emotion. And I think that's kind of the point you were just making, Sarah, yeah. And you said like, you know, all this behaviorism stuff, right? Like it, it came from a certain place in the industry. Um, and we often forget that behaviorism is just one school of thought yeah. when it comes to animal behavior. Yeah. Um, behaviorism refers to something very specific. It refers to a very specific sort of ideology. And there are other sort of elements, right? There are other schools of thought. There's ethology, there's cognitivism, right? Behaviorism at its core is designed to not take emotion into account. And it does that for specific reasons. They it's, it's spoken about openly. It's not like the, it's not like the dirty little secret, right? Like it's just, um, it's not supposed to take into emotion. Behaviorism is supposed to only take into account observable behavior. And part of the reason for that, just historically, the whole field of animal behavior came about because there were certain things we wanted to know about human behavior, but we couldn't do certain types of experiments on people ethically. And so we had to start studying it on animals. That's where the, the, the field, at least of the, the big business of history of animal behavior sort of began. And with people, you can ask questions. How are you feeling? How, you know, what, early on in behaviorism, they didn't have all the fancy MRIs where we know what part of the brain is associated with sadness. And we can see if that area is lit up. They didn't have any of that. All they had was observation. And then there was some like crude mechanical stuff like Pavlov putting holes through the dog's lips so he can measure saliva. Right. But it, it wasn't nearly as um, advanced as it is today. And that's where them back then they didn't even of. believe animals had emotions. Exactly. Too, right? exactly. So, well, they said, well, I mean, a lot of them, you know, were, said that, you know, we can't say that they do or they don't because we can't observe it. That was what it was. So they weren't necessarily saying that they don't have emotions. They were just saying, hey, if we can't observe it, we can't comment on it. And that's where the field of behaviorism came out of. And all this quadrant talk was born out of that. So, Jay, yeah, you're absolutely right. Jay's hitting the nose on the head here. Like it's only a puzzle. Um, I often talk about I talk about it in my reactivity presentation that like you can't separate punishment from its social context. Yeah. You know, um, there's a huge social component to how punishment or how, you know, um, disapproval is mm -hmm. perceived and our, our responses and reactions to it. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there's so much to unpack here with this whole quadrant yeah. kind of thing. Um, and even so like positive punishment doesn't have to be, like there's a big myth in some communities that it causes a lot of stress. It doesn't have to be as long as it's predictable and the dog understands how to avoid it. Right. So when yes, it's a problem exactly. is become when it's not consistent, right? Like I yeah. had, I was actually teaching at a seminar and um, I had my microphone on and there was a certain area of the room that if I walked into, we'd get huge speaker feedback. Oh, it took maybe one or two times for me walking over there before I was like, I can't walk in that area. So that behavior of walking in that spot was punished by the speaker feedback. I wasn't stressed or anything about it because I knew I understood because there was there was consistency in that. If I went to that spot, the awful sound would happen. So I just didn't walk there. I changed my behavior. There was no stress. But if it was just randomly happening where, you know, there was this awful noise and I didn't know what my behavior was doing that was causing it and I couldn't change my behavior, stop it, that could cause a lot of anxiety. But it was Absolutely. a great example. I think I was probably talking about operant conditioning at the time. And I was like, oh, look, positive punishment just happened to me. I changed my behavior because that thing happened when I walked in that spot and I didn't like it. So I'm going to change my behavior to avoid that. Um, but I wasn't upset about it. So it doesn't have to be awful. I don't 
kind of like I was talking about earlier, I don't think it's fair to introduce it too early. And I feel like we're on the same page with that. Um, and I don't think it's really fair to teach behaviors that way either. But, you know, if my puppy jumps up on the table, I'm going to tell her to get her butt down. And then I might go, exactly. well, let's do a training program so that you learn not to jump up on the table. Right. But in the moment, I'm going to be like, knock it off. But I'm not going to purposely set my dog up to make a mistake and, and then punish them for it. But, you know, if it happens, it happens. And yeah, if she's well down in her training program and she does something that she really, I feel like has been trained to know better, I might add a punisher there too. Right. And, you know, you bring up a good point about the consistency and predictability. And, you know, I often talk about perception of control as being like a major factor. Whenever we're using any aversive in our training, the number one thing that's going to sort of make the difference between the dog having a um, sort of unintended consequence or unintended experience is the dog's perception of control over that experience. That's a huge, huge factor. And that circles me back around to that first question about the rabbit poop. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea of like, again, often when we're dealing with the rabbit poop scenario, it's the dogs in the yard, the owner's not. So even if we try to control it with like an e-collar, for instance, um, there's just so much probability that at some point along the line, the dog eats some rabbit poop and the owner doesn't see it and yeah. there's no correction. And it's a really hard thing to address that way because then it's like, well, how come sometimes when I eat rabbit poop, I feel this thing on my neck. Sometimes I don't. It's really, really difficult to be consistent with that. Really, really difficult. Um, and that's one of the challenges with trying to approach it that way. And why I said that even if, you know, like you, if a trainer says they're going to fix your dog's poop eating in two weeks, probably their approach is going to be some attempt to use positive punishment. Yeah. But even then it's, it's, it, there's a lot of challenge there and, um, and it can be stressful and, you know, sometimes stress can be justified if there's a goal that is really important, particularly if it has to do with health and safety yeah. and we know it's going to work, right. You know, it's, it's sort of like the end justifies the means. Like you think like invisible fence training, like, yeah. you know, done well, it doesn't have to be incredibly stressful, but it's generally going to be a bit stressful dog. You know, it's, going to involve some stress, but the goal is that we're trying to prevent the dog from getting hit by a car or Mm -hmm. running off and getting lost. And if it achieves that goal and the stress is very minimal, we can sort of justify it. If it doesn't even achieve the goal anyway, and it becomes really hard to justify, right? So that's sort of my thing with this whole like poop eating is like, if we're going to do it, you know, if we're going to do it and try to use an e-collar, then yeah, you darn well better put a muzzle on the dog when you're not watching, or you better make sure you only put the dog there when you are paying attention. Um, because otherwise, um, until you get the behavior, like really, really well under control and, 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 you know, the dogs, you can really trust the dog. Um, there's too much room for things to start to feel very inconsistent for them. And and the other thing that can happen too, is if you are not consistently, say you're trying to suppress a behavior and you're not consistently punishing it and the dog occasionally gets the opportunity for that reinforcement, you can actually make the reinforcement stronger and reinforce the behavior. (laughs) So that's another reason for consistency is not even, we're not even talking about welfare, but if, you know, if it's not consistent enough and the dog sometimes gets that re- that reward or that reinforcement can actually make the behavior stronger. So there's actually a part of if you're training behaviors with positive reinforcement where you purposefully do that, where you you actually go, OK, well, now I'm not going to reinforce every time you do this behavior because it makes the dog work a little bit harder. And it's like the slot machine effect. Right. Yeah. Or you you sometimes only are going to get reinforcement it actually makes the behavior stronger. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. That that intermittent reinforcement effect, yep, right? Intermittent reinforcement um, makes the behavior stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the other thing too is is it can make the dog even learn to um, develop more tolerance for the aversive, yep. and then cause you to have to use higher intensities exactly. of the aversive or need more overall repetition. So generally, if I'm trying to use punishment, um, a I, I, I'm really big on, on finding the right tool for the job because not every dog responds to the right thing and not every tool is appropriate for every situation. But usually you should see like some significant effect within like three, maybe at the most five repetitions. You should be seeing the effect of what you're doing. And if you're not, then again, it becomes hard to justify. Like, like why would we keep doing this thing yeah. um, that the dog finds unpleasant if it's not yielding results for us? Um, 
And also like the more repetition it takes, the more opportunity there is for the dog to sneak in a few where they get reinforced or where they don't get corrected and to kind of start to mess up your program and mess up your system. So it's sort of like, you know, the, the more repetition it takes, the more that you have this time element of there being risk on the table of something going wrong. And when we're using punishment, especially we don't really want that. We, we want to minimize risk. And part of minimizing risk is minimizing the amount of repetition needed. So we, very, we often want to be very thoughtful about the use of punishment. It's a, it's a tricky topic. And it is. Know, like Sarah and it's pointed nice out, it's, talk, it's nice to talk openly about it too, right? Because I feel like yep. it was so taboo. And like, I, I would describe myself, if I had to put a label, I would say I'm a Lima trainer. Like I will use any quadrant, but I am very careful about you know, going into using punishment because of all the things that we've talked about, you do have to be very careful about it, right? It's never off the table yeah. for me. Um, and I do, I do herding training. So when we do herding training, we use quite a bit of negative reinforcement and, and um, occasional positive punishment as well. So like, I'm super comfortable with it. I just think there's things you have to be conscious of, but it's just nice to talk about it, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to talk about too. Yes. And I think one of the yeah. unintended consequences of the sort of reward only movement, the positive reinforcement movement is for a while, these things did become very taboo. And because they came, became taboo, nobody was talking about it. And also nobody was teaching about it. Yes. And there were still trainers using negative reinforcement and positive punishment, but unfortunately, um, very few were actually using it really well. Yeah. And even the dog training schools that teach prong collar and e-collar weren't really teaching it from, you know, a technically correct standpoint, because yeah. again, nobody was allowed to talk about that. Nobody was allowed to say, so people were using punishment, but saying that they weren't, they were coming up with yes. other things. And that it, happens it became all this thing. The time. Yeah. And again, if, if we're talking about the welfare of dogs, and this was an argument that I made, um, in fact, in Toronto in Canada, several years ago, I was working on a piece of legislation where they were trying to, well, they did successfully for a brief period of time, ban prong collars. And then we were able to get that repealed. But one of my arguments was like, listen, like you could ban all the tools in the world. You are not going to prevent owners from attempting to punish their dogs. No. Like good luck. It's just not going to happen. As long as people own dogs, unless we only breed like super docile, submissive dogs, as long as people own dogs, they'll find owners attempting to punish their dogs, whether they know it's technically called punishment or not, doesn't matter. Yeah. The best thing we could be doing is actually educating people more on how to do it properly. Right. Right. So it's, it, it's sort of like sex education for, for, for youth, right? Yeah. Like it's going to happen. Let's make sure people know how to do it safely and effectively and humanely. And that would actually do a lot more for animal welfare than nobody can talk about punishment. And now you got people out there swatting their dogs with newspapers. And, you know, mm-hmm. I had a trainer visit me one time from New Zealand and um, an area there where prong collars were not legal. And he went out for a walk with me. He was a professional trainer. And when his dog got in front of him, he stomped on the dog's back foot. Ooh. And the dog like yelped. And I looked at him. I was like, what are you yeah. doing? Like, this is, what are you doing? Like, don't do that when you're like, I got my training company shirt on. Like, don't, like, what are you doing? Stop doing that, you know? But for him, it was this very normal thing, you know? And again, he can't use certain other tools. So he was just like, this is what I resort to because I can't use these other things, whether that's an agreeable thing or not. But regardless, that's what can tend to happen when we take away education and when we take away the tools yeah. to do things safely. And yeah, so and I, it, it is a, important to talk about these things. It open. is. I've been a big proponent that I think every trainer should be, I think a lot of trainers could benefit from understanding how to utilize positive reinforcement a lot better for one thing, especially a yeah. training program. Um, yeah. But because a lot of the arguments that I see against positive reinforcement training, you can tell that people don't really understand it. in it's, it's quite silly. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing is I think everybody should understand, you know, how to use all tools in best practices, right? Like I don't personally use e-callers a lot, but I have. Um, and I know how, and I learned from really good people, um, you know, and like, I don't use prong collars a lot, but I will, I have a, a couple of clients that are on them right now. Um, you know, I have the reasons I make tool choices for myself. It's nothing to do with politics. It's, it's for me, it's about effectiveness and how does this tool meet the needs and what does the dog tell me? So like, I have a client right now where the dog wears a prong collar because he absolutely is not having a head halter. He finds it so aversive. And I'm really good at conditioning head halters 
owners, like even dogs that don't like them, I can usually work them through it quite quickly. This dog finds it so aversive. He finds the restraint and the feeling so aversive that, you know, I just wasn't willing to put him through it. And it wasn't worth putting the time into it because it, like, I'm not kidding. It would have taken months. Um, and I can usually desensitize dogs to them in a session or two. Um, so he's on a prong and he's perfectly happy on a prong and we never have to give him leash pops. He's very respectful. We use just negative reinforcement training with him and he gets a lot of positive reinforcement for other behaviors. Um, and you know, like if I have people come into me with a, a prong collar, if it's not affecting the dog's behavior in a negative way that impacts our training goal, I don't care, you know, like it doesn't bother me. Um, but yeah, like yeah. I don't use them a lot, but I know how to use them well. So that if it comes up where I get that situation where I do feel like it's appropriate for the dog and the goals, I know how to do it. Yeah, right? and exactly. I think we just want our positions that. and opinions to come from an educated standpoint, yeah, rather than exactly. humans, right? So when you get people that blast e-collars but have never learned how to use one in a humane or effective way, or people that there are a lot of people that trash positive reinforcement training, then the stuff that they're saying is just like, man, what are you, what are you talking yeah. about? But anyway, let's wrap up there. We're, we're at. Um, four o'clock here Eastern time. And um, I just want to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you guys for the questions and the comments. Um, thank you, Sarah, for your time yeah. and for joining us here again. And we will be back at it. Let me pull up my calendar because I never have the dates in my head ahead of time. We are going to be back here on Thursday, the 5th at 12 o'clock Eastern. We hope to see you all there. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. That's it for today. Be sure to check in next time for episode 12. Evan Doggett will be back. We'll talk about reactivity and building engagement and how to know if you've put too much pressure on your dog. It's going to be a great conversation. I hope you'll tune in.